you would, please take your Bibles out, open them up to Daniel chapter 8. This morning, we will finish this chapter we've been looking at. You know, this week during a conversation I had with a friend of mine, he was asking me, you know, he'd, he'd noticed in the Daniel series that we keep coming back around to suffering and hardship a lot. He was just curious about it. And I figure maybe if one person has that question, other people do. And so I thought, well, I'll just take a few minutes to address that a little bit this morning. One of the reasons that I keep coming back around to suffering in Daniel is because it's where the text is pushing us in the sense that what Daniel is seeing, if we think about these kingdoms, there was a lot of suffering that went along with Persia and Babylon and Rome and uh, Antiochus and all these other things that we're looking at. But also, Daniel is thematically geared towards suffering people, and it, and it works well in, a, in our context because, as I explained to him, as a pastor of the chapel, when I'm looking out at the chapel, I'm seeing the faces of those who are struggling with anxiety, who are struggling with depression, who are walking through deep seasons of sin that they're having to deal with. They're dealing with death. They're dealing with all manner of hardships. And I know that part of the beauty of the Word of God is to bring to bear truth and hope in the midst of our hardship. So perhaps you're wondering why I keep coming back around to this. It's because it's necessary. And it's highly probable that the person on your right or your left is walking through a deep, dark valley of shadow, and they need Christ's hope. Don't ever, let's never take for granted that we don't know everything that everybody around us is walking through, and even I don't, but having, getting to spend time with you on a more personal basis, those of you whom I get to, I do get to walk with you through your valleys. And so why do we need God's word to speak to us in our suffering? Because we are all either suffering right now or will be suffering at some point in the future. And we've got to have that message of hope to remind us that we are not alone when we feel so desolate, when we feel so uh, demolished or destroyed or or just ravaged by life, that we're not alone, that we actually have hope. So that's a longer answer than I gave him. So perhaps if you've also wondered, this is why we keep coming back around to suffering. This morning we're looking at these, these series of visions that Daniel has been having. We've looked at the ram, we've looked at the goat, and now we're coming around to the end of this, which is the small horn that we're going to look at here in just a moment. Daniel has been leveling out, giving us human history with a high degree of accuracy, and of course we should not be surprised at that if the God of the universe who knows all from beginning to end is the one giving Daniel these visions. It makes sense. We should not be shocked at how accurate they are. In fact, we should be very much saying amen. Of course it's this accurate because God knows human history. And so we amen that God is laying out human history to Daniel for what purpose? Well, to encourage us, to remind us that when these historical events unfold, they were not a surprise to God, and God is in fact sovereign over all of them. And the day is coming when God brings his judgment to bear on all that kicks up its heels against him. And so that's what we're looking at. This morning we come to Daniel chapter 8. We are looking at verses 9 to 14 and then 23 to 27. So, beloved of God, without further delay, this is God's infallible, inerrant word, starting in Daniel chapter 8, verse 9. 
Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host of some of the stars it threw some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Then a host will be given over to it all together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering? the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. Now to verse 23. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and, sh- and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but not by human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So is the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to that. Please now pray with me. Father, your word is before us and it is complex. This is a complex vision with complex language. And yet you have given it to make our pathway clear. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would give us understanding, that you would use this text to transform our thinking, to transform our hearts, and to renew us more and more into the image of Christ. It's through his name we pray. Amen. You've heard me mention the missionary, the Scottish missionary, John Patton, before. Uh, He was a missionary to the Hebrides Islands uh, in the 19th century. And if you've not read much about him, his story is, is good. You should read his story. It is filled with tragedy. It's filled with suffering. Uh, he, he did. He suffered quite a bit, but he was faithful to bring God's word to a very uh, harsh environment with cannibalistic tribes. Uh, well, not, not too long after he arrived on the mission field, he and his young wife, they were a young family, uh, they had the joy of welcoming their first child into the world. So they had arrived, uh, and then not too, in the too distant future, they had their first child. Well, their joy was short-lived as the child died not too long after birth. And now, as a parent, we can imagine how hard that must have been to be in the context that they were in and to then have to bury a child. Well, it got worse for John Patton. Not too long after his child died, his wife died. And here was this man of God in the Hebrides Islands trying to be faithful to his charge, and some of the first things he has to do is literally bury his newborn child and his wife. He talks about the nights of grief during those days that he would have himself succumb to death over loneliness and grief. But what he says in his memoir is, were it not 
for the comfort and presence of Christ there with me, I too would have succumbed to death. Beloved, he was walking through one of the hardest seasons anybody can imagine. I mean, death is a big deal. When we bury those we love, it is hard. That is a hard valley to walk. But where was his hope and where was his comfort? It was in the presence of Christ. In his moment of desolation, John Patton says, Christ came and met me there. And beloved of God, I want to tell you that is God's plan. That is God's motif. That is God's pattern of not abandoning us when we are in our desolated moments, but meeting us there in grace and mercy and giving us hope and reminding us that we are not alone, that we have hope, we have a real presence, we have a real friend who sticks closer than a brother. If we would turn our hearts to God instead of closing them off. The desolation came, Christ was present. What is Daniel 8 telling us? The desolation comes, but God is present with us. Daniel continues to reveal this vision that the Lord gave him. Now remember, I've said this every time we've talked about it, but it bears repeating. Daniel got this vision in the third year of Belshazzar's reign. We said that's about 550 B.C., some of the things that he, are, he is looking at here happen as late as 175 B.C. You can do the math. That's how much in advance Daniel saw the future coming down the pike. We've already noted that he saw the, the fall of Babylon. He saw the rise of Persia and then her fall. He saw Alexander the Great sweeping the known world and coming. And he saw Alexander the Great pass from the earth. He saw his four generals rise up. And out of those four generals, he saw another one rise up whom we're going to look at today. These are the things that Daniel saw, that God gave Daniel. What a merciful, gracious God. Daniel was looking at human history, and he's not looking at a history that was bubblegum and cotton candy for God's people. He was looking at a history of tyranny, of oppression, of hardship, of real hardship and heartache for God's people. That's what he was looking at. He saw them all come down the pike. And God is giving Daniel this insight into the future and all the desolations that the people of God have to face. These visions that he's having, they're sobering. And you know what they remind us? Because so often I think we as Christians try to think of that golden age, that time when life was so much better for everybody and everything. Have times gotten hard for, for us? Yeah. Can we, can we say that uh, maybe with the you know, advent of, of social media and all that stuff that evil is more readily apparent or maybe we can see it more clearly or maybe we see it more often? Sure, I'll accept that. But let me tell you something. There is no such thing as a golden age for humanity. There, th those, those times when it was easy and happy and simple, they don't exist. <laughs> but you know why? Because sin is real and in the world. Because there may be, you may have said, well, you may say, well, Brad, I can remember a time in my life where I was happy. I can too. I can too. I remember uh, many times in my life where Rachel and I were very happy. But you know what's always there? To taint it? Sin. So Daniel is not getting the privilege of saying, oh, well, you know, in 300 B.C., actually, it's going to be a lot simpler and there's not going to be any problems for you. No. Again and again and again, these kingdoms are going to come. Wave after wave of tyranny and oppression and hardship. 
And you may say, well, Brad, that's depressing. And it would be were it not for the fact that who is the one being who sits outside of that and says, you are my people, I will not let you go. His name is Yahweh. Within the framework of what Daniel sees, he's also being confronted with a faithful God who says, I'm not abandoning you, I'm not leaving you. When you are most desolated, I am with you. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. I know I need to hear that often because how lonely and desolate do we feel when we are going through hardship, beloved of God. The scriptures remind us that it is in those moments that Yahweh is with his people. He makes our burden easy, easier, because he lightens the yoke with his presence. Desolations don't conjure up positive images. I doubt you're sitting here thinking, I would love to be desolated today with a smile on your face. If you are, we need to have a talk. But nobody wants to be desolated. Just the, the word itself, it just sounds like, like just out in the wilderness with bogs and, and creatures all around. And like, you, it's scary. It just conjures up images of fear. The implication of the word is either complete destruction or utter loneliness. So when we think about being desolated, we're either isolated to the point of, of you know, there's nothing or nobody or we're just completely destroyed. So no, of course, when we think about being desolate or desolated, we don't desire that. Why does God bring desolations to our lives? Why does God allow those things to happen? I don't know the full answer to that, and I don't think that it can be known. But one thing I do know is that when I feel most desolated, I'm reminded that the world right now as it stands is not my home. No, no. If you're in Christ this morning, you too are living for a far country, a far country whose shores offer hope, healing, protection, refuge, and all the other things that your heart desires. We are living for something beyond this world. We are living for eternal fellowship with Christ. And so our hope is not in happy circumstances. That's not our hope. When desolations come, we are reminded that our hope is in something far beyond having a better circumstance. It's in a, the living and true God. And he is bringing us home to that far country. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see this morning, and it's this. Even destruction and desolation come under the watchful care of God. Even destruction and desolation come under the watchful care of God. You know, one of my favorite psalms in the Bible, in the Psalter, it is my favorite psalm in the Psalter. It is Psalm 46. If you've ever received any counseling from me or, or you've sought out encouragement from me or, or just any sort of help, I have probably at least once or twice referred you to Psalm 46 and asked you to read it and pray those words for yourself. Why? When, we, when it comes to Psalm 46, I'm going to read a few passages out of here. It is a masterfully done psalm to give us the reality of life, desolations come, and the hope within those circumstances that the Lord is our refuge and strength, a present help 
in trouble. That's how the psalm begins. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. A very present help in trouble. So when we have times of trouble, what is our hope? What is our refuge? Well, Psalm 46 says God is. God is your refuge. God is your, is your hope. But we've been so conditioned by our culture to go on how we feel rather than what we know that so if we don't feel it, it's hard to believe it. Beloved of God, can I encourage you this morning? Can I challenge you to say when you don't feel it is when you should believe it the most. Satan knows what he's doing. He's crafty. He knows how to connect your emotion with everything to make sure that you don't believe truth if you don't feel it. Well, but Psalm 46 says, silence, be silent, Satan, because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He, he goes through, God is in the midst of her, in the midst of the city of God. She shall not be moved. Why? Because God is there. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage. Kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Oh, beloved, we can't have a more rich truth, a richer truth than that right there. That's the truth that compelled Daniel to stay hopeful in the midst of what he was seeing. I don't know specifically that it was Psalm 46 that did it, but it is psalms like Psalm 46 that remind us, man, if you're struggling this morning with really believing that God's got you, go to that psalm, pray that psalm, meditate on that psalm, because it's the reminder that God does have you. That's not just a nice theological truth. It is true truth, and it's exactly what our hearts need. So this morning, as we're looking at Daniel chapter 8 and asking ourselves, how do we have confidence in the midst of desolation? Well, because God is truly and genuinely our refuge. That's how. When we look at desolations or hardships or the different, however you want to describe the different things that we have to suffer or walk through, we need to remember that desolations are a temporary moment, a temporary moment in God's eternal story. That desolations are a temporary moment in God's eternal story. And so it may feel like the seasons that we go through may feel like they're never going to stop. But beloved, eventually, one day, we will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now enter to the rest of your father. And oh, what a day of rejoicing that will be when the tears are wiped away, the scars are wiped away, the pain is wiped away, and we stand completely loved and able to love a perfect Savior. We are living for something far richer than happy circumstances. Daniel is bringing this vision to a close here. He says, out of one of them in verse 9, out of what is the one of them? Well, that's the four horns that came up. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but he was strong. The great horn was broken. And instead of it in verse 8, it says, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So verse 9 flowing right out of that, out of one of those horns, out of one of those horns came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south and toward the east and toward the glorious land. So we have another mention of a small horn. Now I want to be very clear with you. This is a different little horn than we saw in Daniel 7. The reason being, in Daniel 7, the little horn that we saw, I said to you, was the Antichrist himself. This horn comes in the spirit of Antichrist, 
This horn might be an iteration of the little horn in Daniel 7, but they are not identical. This little horn right here, this small horn, is a man that we can easily identify in history as Antiochus IV, who rose up from the Seleucid dynasty in about 175 B.C., and he reigned for about nine years. He was a horrible person, an awful man, and he tyrannized people. So what we're looking at, so Daniel in 550 B.C. sees the rise of a ruler from one of the dynasties that Alexander the Great, his kingdom was split up in, the Seleucid dynasty, and he sees the rise of Antiochus IV, Antiochus, and, and Antiochus, historically we know, rose up and persecuted Israel. We know that. We know that from history. When we look at this, his goal was to thoroughly Hellenize the world. So what he wanted to do was stamp out any culture that wasn't Greek, any religion that wasn't Greek-based, and anything that's, that stunk of anything that wasn't Hellenized, wasn't Greek, he wanted to stamp it out and make the world Greek. Embrace the Greek system of religion. Embrace the Greek philosophy of culture. Embrace everything, life as you know it, embrace it. Greek, to rob people groups of their identity, to take them away and say, now you have a new identity. Boy, are we still trying to do that in today's world? Yes, we are still talking about identity. We are still trying to, to take people's identity and shift it and turn it, not we, but the world is, to try to make them more like the world. It was not new. That's not a new ploy of Satan. It's been happening for centuries. Antiochus also killed the high priest. I think that was in about 167 B.C., Onias III. And he installed a high priest who was false, who was a godless man to take over the priestly duties. And his goal was to kill God's people, stamp them out, tyrannize them, oppress them. That's what we're looking at in these first few verses of 9, 10, and 11. It says here that Antiochus grew great. It, speaking of the horn, it became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. I'm going to stop right there, because as he grew in greatness, and so when we read that became great, don't think of it as, it's, that's not a compliment, <laughs> He's not being complimented here. He's talking about being growing in arrogance. He's growing in power. He became powerful. He became arrogant. Antiochus did. And this produced three particular fruits from him that the Scripture makes mention of. Firstly, it says that, we just read this, that he became great, even as great as the prince of hosts. Now, he came up and challenged the prince of hosts. What does that say? And who's the prince of hosts here in this context? It's God. So what we're being told about Antiochus is that he rebelled against God. He sought to make himself as great and big as God was, even giving himself the title Epiphanes. He was a madman. He was not great in the sense of morality. He was awful. He killed mercilessly. And he rebelled against God, and when he made war, he didn't make war simply with Israel. He made war with God. He didn't merely want to conquer Israel. He wanted to stamp God out of it. 
beloved of God, that's the tactic that gets used over and over and over and over. When we want to destroy a culture, what do we do? We start getting God out of it. And we make it immoral. Not just amoral, but immoral. And we call evil good and good evil. We're watching it happen. 21st century. That is not new. That's been happening for centuries. So this is what Antiochus did. He rebelled against God, tried to stamp him out. So that's one thing. That's one of the fruits of his life. A second fruit of his life historically is the overthrow of God's worship. We heard it right here. And a, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgressions. It will throw truth to the ground. This is in verse 12. And it will act and prosper. And that is not, a, again, that's not a compliment. He's, he's, he's overthrowing the sanctuary. He's discarding truth. He's throwing truth to the ground. And he's setting up himself as the God-man. He's setting up himself as the one to be worshipped. Now, we know that historically that Antiochus put a statue of Zeus in the Hebrew temple and defiled it and set up Zeus as your God. We also know that on the altar in the temple, he slaughtered a pig and sacrificed a pig, further defiling the altar. He desolated God's sanctuary in an attempt to overthrow God's worship, to, to ruin it, to say we were going to worship the way that I say we worship, not the true way that you've worshiped for centuries. He set himself up, as I said a moment ago, as the God-man. He sought worship for self and false deities. He wanted to crush, stamp out God's worship. You know, beloved, it's, it's not, it should not be lost on us that historically God's people connected warfare and worship. You go back and you look in the Old Testament how many times they are worshiping before they're getting ready for battle. Because they saw the connection of being connected with God, both in worship and in warfare. There's a reason that Jericho was defeated as a result of a worship service that the children of Israel participated in. Because God connects these two things. It is not lost on me that Antiochus wants to overthrow that worship in a bid for warfare to try to crush God's people. So he rebelled against God, he overthrew God's worship, and he did indeed seek to crush God's people. In verse 10 it says, It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled. And then in 12a, And a host will be given over to it together with a regular burnt offering. So Daniel is reporting that he did for a season crush God's people. And so when we look at this man, he's no different than any of the rulers who's, who's come before him. What is his primary objective? It's not the sanctity of life. He doesn't care about life. We're, we're watching human history unfold here. Of course, we know the history. We've, we could read about it. We should not make light that one of the primary motivating factors for pagan rulers has always been to not sanctify life to see people as objects, as animals, easily killed and discarded. And then we understand why in our world people still can suffer from no sanctity of life because it is such a power of sin that has worked in the human heart for centuries. 
But beloved, you see, when we look at life, we understand life is sacred for the, very exp- for the express purpose that Jesus or God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. When we see people, whether we disagree with them or not, we are looking at somebody made in the image of God and that is a powerful thing. To look at people not as obstacles, not as mere political opponents, or not as merely enemies or somebody that we hate, to have to look at them and say, whether I disagree with you or not, whether I like your politics or not, whether you do things that I dislike or not, you are made in the image of God. And at some level, we have to respect that. Challenge ideas, by all means. But let's not turn the image of God and people into their ideology. They may be people who have a severely warped ideology, but beloved of God, as Christians, we can't just look at them and think so much less of them because they, like us, are made in God's image. That is why we fight for life in the womb. Because that child in that womb, that's that's a human baby there. No matter how many weeks old it is, it's a human baby. And it's made in the image of God. And we fight for it. Antiochus does not acknowledge the sanctity of life. And he is in a long line of rulers. It's just so easy to look at them and say, yep, yep, no sanctity of life, none, none. The ones that have it are the ones that stand out. They're the exception. And what a sad human history we we read about when we read that. One of the things that you can't get away from here is Daniel is envisioning a time. Keep in mind, Daniel is exiled right now, right? He's exiled, still serving Babylon. He's envisioning a time, there's a little silver lining here, where he's seeing that Israel has been restored back to uh, Jerusalem, back to the temple, back to temple worship. How do we know? Because he's talking about a ruler who's eventually going to come along and desolate that temple, who's going to come along and put down that God's worship and try to crush God's people. So he's envisioning a time when Israel is back to their temple and to their homeland. But he's also telling us that they have a new transgression. Renewed transgression is the word he used there just a few moments ago. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgressions. It will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. That is verse 12. So the people of God are in exile right now because of their own sin. And Daniel is telling them, hey, guess what? You're going you're gonna to mess up again. And God is going to desolate you again. So Israel would be desolated because of renewed sin when we look at this, what should it speak to us? Beloved of God, it speaks to us that God's judgment for sin is not only sure, it's coming, it is just and right. It is just and right. God's judgment on sin is just and right. The sin that Israel historically struggled with, when you, you read this in the New Testament, I mean the Old Testament rather, historically they struggle with idolatry and unbelief. And those things kind of go together. Idolatry and unbelief. The willingness to believe in a false god and an unwillingness to believe in the true God despite the history they'd had with said true God. And so through idolatry and unbelief, 
Israel is constantly finding themselves between the hammer and the anvil of, of God's judgment. But we, we have to understand, what do we take from this? That, beloved, that sin is serious and that God takes sin seriously. That historically he has sent desolations to purge his people. What, what do we know? That God sent his son into the world because sin is such a serious foe and enemy that we couldn't conquer it alone. He, alone. he sent Jesus into the world to be a sin offering for us. That's how seriously God takes it. God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him, that is in Jesus, we might be and find the righteousness of God. That is how seriously God takes sin. And Daniel is reminding the people that God will not let his people just sin and sin and sin and sin when not challenge it. We've got to get sin out. We've got to purge sin out. And that is the beauty of what the gospel does. The gospel breaks the power of sin. The gospel gives us renewed life. The gospel, that message that God sent Jesus into the world to bear sin for us so that we could be made whole. That's the most hopeful message we have. What, is, what does the gospel tell us? That Jesus was desolated for you if you're in him this morning. That he was desolated for you and for me so that we might have fellowship with the true and living God. We should not take that lightly. Brad should not take that lightly this morning. We're told here in verse 13, he says, And I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot? Verse 14 answers, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, interestingly, 2,300, 2,300 evenings evening, and mornings, there are a couple of different ways you could understand that. He uses the language 2,300 evening and mornings. You know what he's talking about there? The evening and the morning sacrifice. So two sacrifices daily. So some people who say, so the evening and morning sacrifice is two sacrifices daily, really should just represent one day. And so they look at that, 2,300 mornings and evenings as about three and a half years, give or take. And the reason they take it that way is they see the history like this. It was in 167 B.C. that Antiochus put the statue of Zeus in the sanctuary. And sometime in 164 B.C., Judas Maccabeus cleaned out, cleansed the sanctuary, restored the temple, and Antiochus died later on that year. So they see this as really representing three and a half years that would be the end of the reign of Antiochus. There are others who say, well, no, 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 this really represents six years, about six years. And it starts from when about the time where Antiochus had murdered Onias in about 170 B.C., and then he died in 164 B.C. Is there any major difference in how you take this? No. It doesn't, there's no bearing on how we understand the vision. Either it's three and a half years or it's six years. It doesn't much matter. What matters is that what are we seeing here? That God is in control of this. <laughs> that this is God's planned judgment. That God is the one who sets the parameters down. That God is the one who decides times and places that God is the one who controls seasons. That God is in control. Incidentally, 
in 164 B.C., Antiochus, having not realized he had a disease, he just died very suddenly, very quickly, abruptly. Much like Alexander the Great, and beloved of God, we do well. We don't need to marvel at it, but to believe that when God says a time is over, a time is over. When God says it's time to begin, it will begin. And history proves that again and again. Squaring out 23 through 27 with how they work with those verses 9 through 14, the bold-faced king that is mentioned in verse 23, and at the latter end of their kingdom when the transgressors have reached their limit, a bold face, a king of bold face who understands riddle, riddle shall rise. That is the same as the small horn in verse 9. So we're talking, about, again, he's just kind of pairing up that that is Antiochus. But he's focusing down here who understands riddles, his power shall be great, not his own power, makes sure to add that, and he will cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. We're just kind of getting a rehashing of what it is that Antiochus will do. He's going to focus on hurting the saints. He's going to focus on fulfilling that satanic calling of bringing death and destruction to the world, but we understand that this man is not powered of his own accord. Daniel is telling us his power is not his own. It comes from outside him. Do you remember when we saw the, the visions of the four beasts, how often the power that they had, it came from outside them. They were given their power, and this one is no different. God has given this man power for a season and time to bring destruction on the people of God because of their transgression. We are told here in these last few verses, by his cunning he shall make deceit prosper. So he causes prosperity through deceit, that he wars against truth, and his own mind shall become great without warning. He shall destroy many. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes. There again, bringing rebellion to God. And he shall be broken, but not by human hands. What are we looking at here? This war against truth and righteousness? He destroys many. Again, you've heard me mention this. You're seeing the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. It's a theology that is woven all throughout the Bible. God mentions that in Genesis chapter 3 when he talks about there being constant war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This is no different. He's a part of that line, the seed of the serpent trying to bring destruction to the people of God. We're looking at something that can't just be defined as one moment in history. We're looking at something cosmic here. That Antiochus was a picture of something cosmic that's happening. It was war with the people of God, trying to throw down the people of God. And when he confronts the living God, he raises himself up to God. It says, he shall be broken, but by no human hand. In other words, God will destroy Antiochus. Yahweh will break him just like Yahweh will break the power of all that is wicked and cause to prosper his righteous people, even though sometimes it doesn't look like it. Remember, we have to go by what we know to be true, not by what we think or feel is true in a moment. The last couple of verses, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. I love that simple statement. It's true. The evenings or, or the vision of the evening and morning that has been told is true, but seal it up. Seal it up, for it refers to many days from now. 
This was not for Belshazzar. It was not for Darius the Mede. It was not for Cyrus. It was not for Alexander the Great. It wasn't even for Antiochus. Why was he telling him to seal it up? Because this vision is for the people of God. And it's a sobering picture of the future. It even says here, that final verse, that it made Daniel sick. He was appalled. He was sickened by what he saw. So, beloved, uh, we, we do well to be sobered by what he saw. If it made him physically ill, he saw a powerful vision. But there is something here that is a little bit of a application teaching moment to you and to me. And I, Daniel, verse 27, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. I love that he puts that in there. He's sick. He's sickened. He's appalled. He's overwhelmed. But what does he have to do? Live his life. He still has to live his life. He can't just waste away in the dark and say, oh, woe is me, God, what's going to happen? No, no, no. He's still got to get up and go to work. He's got to get up and take care of his responsibilities. He's got to get up and do the things required of him because he still has a life to live. Beloved of God, yes, it's okay to be overwhelmed. We may be overwhelmed. You may be overwhelmed right now, but in the grand scheme of things, what is God calling us to do? To get up and live. To live. To live. To live our lives and to be faithful doing so. What do these visions tell us? God is in control, and so live your life. Brad, live your life. You, whomever you are, live your life. Desolation is not our enemy. It's not. Despair is. That's the true enemy that we have to fight. We often fear desolation because it means destruction or isolation, right? We've, we've determined that. Our primary default is to avoid things that are painful. We tend to do that. Pain, however, it teaches us about our own limitations, doesn't it? We experience pain, and we experience what it means to be limited. Pain also teaches us how to be empathetic to others when they're hurting. Sometimes somebody is going through a particular pain. If you suffer from migraine headaches, I have great empathy for you because I too suffer them. If you deal with anxiety and depression, I have great empathy for you because I too deal with anxiety and depression and I go through dark nights of the soul just like everybody does. So these are pains that I would love to not have. But they're also pains that remind me, that have taught me some lessons about myself. I'm not strong enough. I'm not. I'm weak. But also it's given me a compassion. So when I see you buckling under anxiety and depression, my heart goes out and I want to say, hey, here, let me walk with you because I too know what it's like to be overcome with anxiety and sadness. So pain is good. I don't desire it. I doubt you do. But it's teaching us things. It's teaching us empathy. It's teaching us our limits. So the enemy that we have to avoid is not pain. It's despair. It's despair. Despair is hopelessness. Despair is, is, is that, that void that exists where there's no confidence and joy. Just that place of, ugh. Satan wants us to despair because despair robs us of life, you see. When we despair, we don't live. Or, what we, or how we live is a shell of what our lives are meant to be. Desolations come. 
And we will have to walk through them many times over. And perhaps you're in one now. Desolations aren't necessarily a sign of God's abandonment. Sometimes people think, well, if God was good enough or powerful enough, we wouldn't have to walk through that. That's not what that means at all. Sometimes they are signs of God's great love, that he places a burden in our lives that he intends to help us carry for the experience of being able to walk with others when they have to carry those same burdens. So sometimes desolations are God's way of showing us his great love while we are in the valley of shadow. Please pray with me. God, thank you this morning for your work, your word, and the hope that you give us in your son. Oh God, whoever is walking through desolations this morning, I pray that you would give them encouragement. I pray that you would send somebody into their lives today with a word, with a scripture verse, with a nugget of truth that lightens their hearts and eases their burden. And Father, I pray that we would constantly be praying to be that for other people, to serve other people in that way. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for community. And thank you for truth. I pray that we would live it out with joy. Amen.